G'day and welcome to the City on a Hill podcast. I'm Guy, Senior Pastor of City on a Hill, a movement of churches across Australia united around the central mission of knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. Whether you're on your morning commute or sitting down with a warm cup of coffee, I hope this message fuels your faith, hope and love. And while we're here, let me encourage you to prayerfully consider supporting this ministry. You can do that by heading to cityonahill.com.au. God bless. Look forward to connecting soon. You guys are going to stay up here. You're going to help me with our Bible reading. The rest of you, can have, well, everyone can have a seat. Um, I do need my Bible, though, which I have left down here. Now, there is a tradition when the Jewish people at Purim come together to read the book of Esther, they do something super fun, which is when the bad guy, we name the bad guy. Do you remember who the bad guy is in our Esther story? What's his name? He's, a, well, there's a bad king. Yes. Who else? Luca? Haman. So every time we say Haman, I say Haman, you guys are going to go, boo. And every time we cheer on Esther and Mordecai, we are going to give them a cheer. What kind of cheer should we give them? Woohoo! Oh, good. Charlie's here to help with the Bible reading as well. So we are going to see Haman's plans to hang Mordecai. Chapter 5, verse 9. And Haman... Boom! ...went out that day joyfully and glad of heart. But when Haman... Boom! ...saw Mordecai... Boom! ...in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. He sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh, and Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of all of his sons, all the promotions which, which with the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I'm invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai, the Jews sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife, Suresh, and all his friends said to him, Let a gallow fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. On that night the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. It was found written how Mordecai had told him about Bigathan, Bigthana, and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king says, What honor or distinction shall be bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman... 
had just entered the outer courts of the king's palace to speak to the kings about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young man told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in. And the king said to him, what should be done to honor a man with whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whomever would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, oh, we missed that one, boo, said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and a horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done for the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do this to Mordecai, the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave nothing out that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning with his head covered, and Haman... told his wife Shresh and all of his friends everything that had happened. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is one of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. These are the words of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, be to, God. to God. You guys can go find your seats. And who's coming up to preach today? Dave. I'll uh, do it. I didn't wow. know Charlie. Charlie's really excited to see I'm you. So excited. I'm so excited. Hey, hey Charlie. Friend. How you doing, Charlie? Hi. I'm so excited to hear you today. That's great. We have not prepared anything together. No. So say bye, Charlie. Bye, everyone. Uh, friends, great to be with you. My name is Dave. I'm the youth minister here and very excited to be opening up this hilarious chapter of Esther. So would you pray with me as we come to God's Word? Father, we thank you so much for your power and your might and your sense of humour. We pray you would blow our mind with reality. Open our eyes to see how the world works because you make it work. And open our hearts to trust you more. We pray this in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, Amen. Well, in the 1960s, a man named Edward Lorenz got sick of dressing inappropriately for the weather. He'd dress in a jumper and it would be hot the next day. He'd wear his shorts the next day and it would be cold. And he was getting more and more frustrated. So he said, there must be something we can do. This is before weather balloons. This is before the Bureau of Meteorology. And so he said, what if we tried to use maths? What if we tried to use maths to predict the weather? If it's sunny today, what are the statistical chances it will also be sunny tomorrow? And so he got his whiteboard markers out 
and he got to work. And after years and years of trying, what he discovered was using maths to predict the weather is very, very hard. It's, it's nearly impossible because there are so many different things that impact the weather. Trying to understand and account for all of them is almost impossible. And, and so to explain this to all his friends who are asking how he's going with using maths to predict the weather, he wrote a paper called Deterministic Non-Periodic Flow, which is exactly as boring as it sounds. And as all his friends began to tune out when he was explaining his findings, he realized he needs another way to explain how difficult this is. And so he came up with something called the butterfly effect. The butterfly effect is a theory which simply says that a butterfly flapping its wings is enough to cause a tornado. A butterfly that flaps its wings in, in one part of the world is enough to cause a tornado in another part of the world. Not by itself, obviously, but, but that small change in the atmosphere can lead to another change, which can lead to another change, which can lead to another change and another change and another change. And before you know it, it's raining sideways in Peru. That's the butterfly effect. The, the idea is our world is so in, interconnected, it's, it's so complicated that even the tiniest event can have the biggest consequences, which as an idea is pretty cool when you think about it. Just the sheer complexity and intricacy of the way the world works is amazing and it's exciting and it's overwhelming. Like that, that, that puts so much pressure on even the smallest of things. Maybe you're walking down the footpath and you see an ant and you're wondering, do I avoid the ant? It probably doesn't matter, does it? Well, the butterfly, the butterfly effect might say that ant could very well hold the cure to cancer. It, it, it could be that, that you do a burp at the dinner table, which leads to a storm, which leads to the extinction of humanity. That, that's a possibility, according to the butterfly effect. And suddenly things start to get a little bit overwhelming. So what do we do about the butterfly effect? What do we make of a world like this? Well, I think that's where Esther, chapter 5 and 6, helps us. Because here is a chapter, a passage, full of seemingly insignificant moments. Small events like the beat of a butterfly's wings, which in a very real way change the entire course of human history. And, and as we pull on this thread, we begin to see that it leads to a much, much bigger ball of wool. So to help us through this passage, I've got three headings. And the first one is this, deliberate invitations. Our story begins where last week's story left off. Esther has decided to stand up and help her people, to be counted as one of God's chosen people and go into battle for them. So she puts on her battle dress. She walks to the inner court of the king's palace in verse 1. And you're not allowed to do that. Even if you're the queen, turning up uninvited is enough to have you lose your crown and maybe even your life. But she goes in anyway. And then we read in verse 2, when the, when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. 
And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you, even to half my kingdom. Not only is the initial threat of losing her life past, no, the king welcomes her and offers her whatever she wants. And her request is a humble one. Esther says in verse 4, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I've prepared. And so they go to the feast. And the king says, well, Esther, what is it? This is a wonderful feast. Again, you can have whatever you want up to half my kingdom. What can I do for you? And she says, come to another feast. Which is a very strange request. There are feasts everywhere in this book. Have you noticed that? They're just feasts. It's like, like an episode of The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. They're just always in restaurants. I, I haven't seen it, but I understand that's how it works. Isn't that right, Harry? Is that true? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it does seem strange, though. The uncanny amount of eating that goes on in this book that that given a blank check for anything in the kingdom, all Esther asks for twice is that they would come to a feast. Now, for the king to ask that question at this point, we know what Esther should say. What can I do for you, Esther? She should say, save my people. But instead, she says, come to a feast. And I think that's super important. Super significant, because the way we tell stories in the West is a little bit different to the way that they tell stories in this world. So this is the way that we tell our stories, right? Our stories have a beginning, a middle, and an end. You talk about Goldilocks and the three bears, right, at the beginning... They make porridge, and then they go for a walk while it cools down, and then in the middle, Goldilocks tries her hand at breaking and entering, perhaps a spot of grand larceny, helps herself, and then at the end, she eats the porridge, and the bears eat Goldilocks, or something. Is that how it ends? She runs away. That's much more wholesome, isn't it? But the moral of the story is clear. Don't steal stuff. Right? Breaking and entering is bad, and we learn that at the end because it doesn't work out. And so suddenly the end becomes by far the most important part of the story. That's what you want to pay attention to, to work out what this story is trying to tell us. Not so with Esther. Not so with stories in this time and in this place. They work a little bit differently. While we have a beginning, middle, and an end, they have the ends, and they match each other. And then they have... The bits before and after the uh, before the end and just after the beginning, and then you get closer to the middle, and then at the very centre of the book is the most important part. The middle matters most. Check this out. There are eight feasts in the book of Esther. There's one in chapter one, and one in chapter nine. And then there's another one in chapter 1 and another one in chapter 9. And then there's one in chapter 2 and there's one in chapter 8. And in chapters 5 and 6, Esther invites the king and Haman to not one, but to two different feasts. 
which draws our attention to the middle. It means we're there. And whatever happens between these two feasts is the most important part of the whole book. So what happens? Let's read on. It's not just the king who comes to these feasts. It's also Haman himself, the man who is hell-bent on destroying God's people and every memory of them. And, And Haman's pretty excited about his invitation to these feasts. He goes home pretty happy with himself after the first invitation. But as he's walking home on his way, he sees Mordecai, the man he hates. And again, Mordecai doesn't bow to Haman. He doesn't show him any deference or respect. And And so he goes home and Haman starts talking to his wife and his friends. How was your day, honey? Well, it was good and bad. Okay, tell tell me more. Well, well, I went went to a great feast today. (laughs) Delicious food, just me and the king, full of honour. It was very exciting and super exclusive. And I've got another one tomorrow. So great day, really. Oh, that's, that's excellent, darling, but, but what was bad about your day? I saw that Mordecai again, and you know how he makes me just so cross. And so Haman's wife says, well, let's do something about it this time. In verse 14, her and the friends say, his wife and Zeresh and all his friends said to him, let a gallows, 50 cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased him, and he had the gallows made. A plan is afoot to have Mordecai hung up on a tree. He's got the plan, he's got the power, he's got the riches, he's got everything going for him. He holds all of the cards, and then everything goes hilariously, spectacularly wrong. Which leads us to our second heading, delicious ironies. The next morning, Haman heads to the king's palace to tell him about this plan to have Mordecai strung up on the tree. And the king asked him, Haman, before you go, I I wanted to ask you something. What what would you do for the person that I want to honour most? And Haman thinks to himself, well, what's got two thumbs and deserves the honour of the king? This guy. And so he rolls out his shopping list. Let's do dress-ups and horsey rides, king. Let's go for a parade through the town, wearing the royal clothes, having all the royal respect and honour that would normally be reserved for you. And the king says, brilliant. Let's do it. And let's do it for Mordecai. Verse 10, the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing you've mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai, and he led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honour. It's so good. It's just tasty. To have this picture of Haman, this deeply, deeply evil man having to walk through the city with his enemy being glorified, saying himself, 
Thus shall it be done to the man the king delights to honor. Thus shall it be done to the man the king delights to honor. If, if you think this is funny, it is. It's supposed to be. That's why we do a pantomime reading. That's why they do it every year at the Purim Festival because this is outrageous in the most satisfying way. It's a comical reversal of fortunes, enough to make you clap and laugh and cheer and jeer and cry. And the question is, how does this happen? How does such an enormous reversal come about? Well, it's worth remembering, if this structure is right, then this is the moment where the whole book turns. Where Haman has gone from holding all the cards to holding the horse for his enemy, from from things going bad to worse for God's people to, to everything coming up Israel. What's happened in this passage to see such an incredible reversal? Well, the answer is, a butterfly flapped its wings. Our third heading is deceptive insignificance. We pick up the story in chapter 6, verse 1. On that night, the king could not sleep. He gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, who'd sought to lay hands on the king. And the king said, what, what honor or distinction's been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's young men who attended him said, Nothing. Nothing's been done for him. And the king said, who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows he'd prepared for him. Friends, this is the passage at the very center of the book of Esther. And if you're on a treasure hunt and all the clues led you here and you open the chest, it would be very disappointing because it couldn't seem more mundane. The events of these verses are just innocuous. They seem almost entirely insignificant. The king can't sleep, and so he has someone read the chronicles to him. Now, the chronicles are like the meeting minutes of the kingdom. Someone's just keeping track of what's going on. In a very real way, this is the ancient equivalent of catching up on emails. And that's what happens in the most significant passage in the whole book. Because as you look closely at these verses, you see it is jam-packed with the tiniest of coincidences. If the king had only been able to get to sleep that night, if the royal bedtime story reader had just opened the chronicles to a different page, If only they'd remembered to thank Mordecai at the time. If Haman hadn't wandered in at exactly the moment when the king was wondering how to honor his enemy. If any of those things were different, history would be different. But here we are. Moment after moment, which happen at just the right time, in just the right way, which lead to a great reversal of fortunes for God's people. And we might think, gosh, that's lucky. 
What a coincidence. But that would be a spectacular exercise in missing the point. Because not even the characters in the story think that. Haman goes home after his awful, awful day leading a parade for someone else. And he tells his wife and friends what's happened. In verse 13, Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, if Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Even they can see this is no coincidence. God has made promises to his people and there is nothing anyone can do to ruin those plans. This is no coincidence. God is behind this every step of the way. The God who at all times, in all seasons and in every way works for the good of those who love him. There are no coincidences in the book of Esther. No no small detail is accidental. God's name may not be mentioned in this book, but his hand is at work everywhere. He's at work in the king's sleepless night. He's at work in the reading of the chronicles and the jogging of memories. God is not missing. And what's true in Esther is true in everything. Again and again, through the Bible, you can see God's awesome demonstration of his power. As he parts the seas, he makes giants fall, he brings kingdoms to their knees. It is clear there is no upper limit to God's power. But Esther shows us there is no lower limit to his power either. There is no detail too small for God to be across it. No coincidence that escapes him. Jesus puts it this way, not not in terms of butterflies, but in terms of sparrows. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? Every little thing. Each bird that falls, each wind that blows, each beat of a butterfly's wings... It all happens on God's watch. It all happens under the banner of his power. He really does have the whole world in his hands. Now, it's not always possible to trace that. It's not always possible to see exactly where his hand is at work or in which direction he's pulling you or the people around you or or where he might be leading. And and I think it would be a mistake to try to get our chalkboards out and draw the X's and O's and arrows everywhere to try and read God's will into every little thing that happens around us. You can drive yourself crazy trying to overanalyze every single circumstance, reading into this and that, working out what God is trying to do. Before long, you're reading your tea leaves but that would be like trying to predict the weather using maths. There is far too much going on. 
It is nearly impossible for us to do. And yes, there are times when God kindly reveals to us the ways he's been at work. And when he does, that's great. But it's not always guaranteed. He is at work. We can know that. But, but he won't always show us exactly how. At least not yet. One day we'll see it. One day we'll, we'll get the bird's eye view of all of history. Every win, every loss, every triumph, every tragedy. And then we'll be able to see exactly where God was and what he was doing and why. And there's great comfort in that. But for now, it, it may not be for us to trace every work of God's hand. But it is for us to trust it. To know that, yes, he is still on the throne. He is always, in everything, working for the good of those who love him. We can't always trace it, but we can always trust it. Because at the very darkest moment of human history, it seemed like God went missing. As Jesus, the, the hope of God's people, went to trial, God didn't send a prophet to change the outcome. As Jesus was beaten and abused, he didn't send a king to rebuke the soldiers. As Jesus hung on the cross, he didn't send his mighty angels to intervene. It seemed like God was missing. But in every little detail of the story, God's hand is at work. In the seemingly insignificant things, God keeps his promises as Jesus hangs on the cross, they give him sour wine to drink. Just like Psalm 69 said they would. They divided his clothes amongst themselves, just like Psalm 22 said they would. Jesus cried out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, just like Psalm 31 said he would. Jesus died on a tree taking the punishment that you and I deserved for our mistrust of God. And at that moment, when all seemed lost, God kept his promises. Every promise was yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. At the moment when Jesus himself seemed the most insignificant, he became the king of kings. And now we can trust. We can trust even when we don't see. Because if God can work in that, he can work in anything. And when you don't know where God is, when you don't know what God is up to, when God seems missing, remember the cross. 
for he knows what it's like to suffer with you, for you. He knows there's evil in the world and he has come to do something about it. He knows we are powerless, but he is not. For every beat of a butterfly's wings happens under his power. And the rolling away of the stone, the raising from the dead of the Lord Jesus Christ, the resurrection of all his people have his fingerprints all over it. We're going to take communion now as a church family. And if you're a believer in Jesus, I'd invite you to join in this meal. If you're not, it's so great that you're here. And I invite you just just stay seated where you are as we come forward and, and reflect. Is it a coincidence that you're here? But but for those of us who do believe, we'll come down the middle, we'll collect the bread and the juice. There's one at the front, there's one at the back, and then we'll head back to our seats via the sides, and we'll all take communion together as God's people. And as we do, it's a tangible reminder, a physical act of faith to receive these gifts and say, whatever is going on around me, whatever I can see or not see, where the beautiful butterflies or raging storms, my trust is in this. The God who works in all things for the good of those who love him and sent his son to die for me and my sins. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body broken. Do this in remembrance of me. And then after supper, he took the cup and after giving thanks, he said, this is my blood of the new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. And so we do what he commands. We put our trust in him and we remember and rejoice that Jesus went to the cross for us, for the forgiveness of our sins and the hope of our future. Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much that you have not left us in the dark. You have not left us to suffer on our own, but that you have stepped in. You've kept all of your promises. You've given us hope and a future through the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So I invite you to...